0: Hi everyone and welcome to episode 10 of Conversations with the Code 9 Foundation. In this episode we are joined by one of the original members of the Code 9 family and I must say probably one of the much loved and most highly respected family members at that, Rob Atkins. Rob, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, g'day. Now, just before we get started, both Rob and I wanted to just put a little bit of a content warning at the beginning of this particular podcast because among many other things that we will be chatting about, we will be touching on the Black Saturday bushfires of 2009. So, if that event is a difficult one for you or even if you're just having a really tough time today, maybe have a think about giving this one a miss for now and coming back and listening at a later time or Maybe just put this one to the side. I'm sure Rob won't be offended at all. Okay, Rob, for those who don't know you, former Victoria Police Sergeant with some 20-odd years in the force, doing my usual background research that I do before I speak to anyone on these podcasts, and certainly from chatting to some of your mates within the Code 9 family, words like tough, honest, hard-ass all came up. That hard-ass came up a few times, actually um here's a quote for you he'll tell it straight and he'll tell it to your face and that was code nine founder and director Mark Thomas and he said I'm massively respecting for that and that is certainly something that has come through to me right from my first contact with uh code9 and becoming part of this group was that there's a huge respect for you as not only uh, an ex you know copper but just a, a A really decent bloke and I must admit when I first started with Code 9 and that was back in March of 2019 so time's flown um yeah I really I realized that you know I was looking at some of those posts that I was making on our social media channels and kind of judging whether they were hitting the mark or not by whether you had liked them so (laughs) I kind of realized pretty early on that your opinion mattered a lot to a lot of people in this group and Look, your own social media feed provides evidence of a really beautiful family, look, Christy is obviously a a, brilliant wife out there who is doing her own amazing career but also supporting you and the family as well. And look, she's stunning. So you're batting well above your average there, mate. Well done to you. (laughs) Um,
1: Yeah, she's my my rock, very much so. Yeah,
0: she looks amazing. Uh, A passion for supporting mental health of your fellow emergency service responders obviously comes through. But I have to say also... Rob, some very questionable moustaches over the years. Like what was going on with some of those? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I've I've invoked everything from a nineteen fifties uh homicide mustache to the uh, the nineteen seventies porn star moustache just for uh, Well, it's it's
0: only facial hair, so why not? Oh, look, just give it a go. I remember one time recently, you know, we've all been locked down in isolation to a large extent and my husband was getting a bit bit hairy. I said, you look like a werewolf. Go and shave your beard. And so he'd come (laughs) out and he'd shaved everything off, but he'd left the Hitler moustache. And I just (laughs) said, no, you can't. And he said, it's not fair. One guy gave this look a bad name for eternity. It's just not fair. I'm bringing it back. I said, no, you're not. Go get rid of it. But um, look, there's also more recently been some pictures of some ridiculously cute goats, which I seriously think Code 9 should get into the assistance goats program, but that's another program itself to talk about. Um, But look, you have said that they've been a great addition to your self-care and you you seem to be in a pretty good place at the moment. And obviously that's superficial on the outside. They're we put certain things on our social media platforms and then internally we can be really struggling. So I'm wondering for all of those people who are listening, who think, you know, actually I'm I'm, I'm struggling a bit, like I put on this persona to the outside world that I'm okay and I talk quite openly lately to, you know, particularly through this pandemic when our default answer tends to be when people ask, oh, how are you going? Even on the phone, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm good, I'm fine, even when we're not. And so lately I've tried to be a little bit more honest and say actually I'm feeling pretty flat today or pretty overwhelmed and it's funny when people, they, they're a bit taken aback because they're not used to people being honest about not being in a good mental health space. So I'm Definitely. wondering if you can share with, with our listeners whether you who you know, do seem to be in a pretty good space, do you still have your bad days and if you do, what do you do to manage those?
1: Um, so I am in a pretty good place, but uh, I, I do that because I have a, a good psychiatrist. Um, I'm just about to start a course of EMDR, of high movement desensitisation response therapy. Um, I have a great GP that I see monthly, and I have a psychologist that I see fortnightly. So I'm very active in my care, and I've never let that slack off. Um, I've been an inpatient in in Ward 17 um in a psychiatric facility four times. And um, I call that my safe place. Um, And I have a very strict routine for my week that um, if I don't follow it, it all falls apart. And I, every now and then, don't follow that routine because I think, oh, well, I'm doing really well. So I I drop my routine and uh, it comes back with a vengeance and hits me and and things fall apart. So um, for me... I know that uh, it took me a long time to accept that I had PTSD. I was my own worst enemy in that respect. And one of my last psychologists made me, get got me to accept that I had PTSD, not that I, I can be cured or anything like that, but just to accept that, okay, I have PTSD and I have to live with it. Once I got used to the idea of actually just accepting that I, I have this injury and um, that I have to work around it, same as if you if you, you had a physical injury, and you have to work around having a limitation, um, things got a little bit easier for me. So I uh, instead of fighting against having this limitation, instead of being able to fight against the fact that I can't go out to the football and be in a loud, large crowd or I can't be in busy places or I stand next to a busy intersection with cars rushing by me because I can't take um, traffic noise anymore, once I accepted that I need to do things a bit differently, life got a lot easier for me. So for me, my routine, breaking it down really quickly, is I spend Monday and Tuesday in bed all day up to 3pm. That allows me, from when the kids get home, I have all my evening with the kids, and I'm happy and well, and I have energy to be with them. Tuesday, my wife's at work, so I'm in bed all day because the kids are at school, rebuilding. Tuesday night, the kids are up, uh, the kids are home from school, so I've got energy to be with them again. I take the kids to basketball, which is a high-stress environment uh, for me with a lot of people moving around, a lot of kids screaming and and that kind of thing. So I spend Wednesday, I spend half of Wednesday back in bed again, recovery, Um, Wednesday night, basketball, that kind of thing, Thursday back in bed again, Um, Friday my wife's home from work, so I have Friday, Saturday, Sunday doing normal family things with the family, using all my energy again, being a normal dad, um, not in bed during the day but up and about and doing things around the house and um, comes, comes around the Monday again and I'm back in bed again. So I have a very strict routine of these days I'm in bed and this is my recovery time and nothing interrupts that. These days I'm up and out of bed and I'm a father again for, for half a week and uh, any day I sort of push it and think oh, I'll just spend um, Wednesday out and about or I'll spend Tuesday out and about doing extra things around town my whole system falls apart and I I don't have the energy and then I'll end up having anxiety attacks and that kind of thing. So it's very easy for me to have a bad day if I just go outside of my routine. So my self-care is a very strict routine and that came from me accepting that I have PTSD and stopped fighting against my own pride, basically. Mm.
0: Um, There's a couple of things there, just listening to words that jumped out at me. And so obviously routine, I agree, is so important and that's sort of when my anxiety certainly flares and I feel out of control in the world is if I'm out of control in my own personal routine so I totally Very hear you so. on that one. How did you go about um, managing that routine? You said you know with your wife working the kids at school the routine seems to work but with everyone being at home during the pandemic did that sort of throw things a bit of a spanner in the works?
1: Yes it did. It's been really hard actually having um, having that lack of personal space and um lack of quiet time has been a bit more challenging it's uh
0: so is that a conversation that you have with your family or about uh, how you manage that
1: i've I've managed to manage it myself at the same time as we've had less personal time for me um we've also had less outside influences because there's been no uh kids sports kids Mm. basketball um things like that to to um tie me out as well so it's been a bit of give and take so I've been able to manage it, but it's certainly been noticeable,
0: yeah. Yeah, so this is a bit of a personal question, so please feel free to tell me to shut up, it's none of my business. And Christy, I apologise, so please, if Christy wants me to say, you know, you can message me later and say, Christy said shut up, it's none of your business. But obviously having those conversations with your partner around – this is the routine I need, this is what's going to work, and this is what's best for me to be best for the family. Were they conversations that came easily for you guys as a family unit or were they things that were quite difficult to talk about at the start?
1: No, I'm stubborn as hell um, and full of pride. So um, I would I would uh, have these conversations with Christy and I would take a little bit of it on board and then I would go have these conversations with my psychologist and um, – eventually I would listen to my psychologist I would come home tell my wife um what this what I've just had this conversation with my psychologist she'd roll her eyes and say yeah I told you that four <laughs> months ago so um so uh, yeah no it takes a while for these things to get through to me
0: Rob have so, you not learnt yet how long have you guys been married
1: <laughs> yeah 20 something years have
0: you not learnt yet that happy wife happy life I mean, I needed, I was almost going to write that into my wedding vows, but (laughs) aside from that, um, another thing that stood out to me, and it's something that I've been learning personally at the moment as well, because I've just transitioned from seeing a psychologist to a psychiatrist. And I'm wondering if, you know, some of our listeners out there might be having questions around why do you have both and why, uh, what different elements do they, does a psychologist bring to a psychiatrist and why do you have both of them as part of your self-care maintenance?
1: So I I have, for me, my psychologists have always run my care um, and my psychiatrists have predominantly just looked after my medications. That's the way my health's always been um, managed. I know a lot of people do it differently, but I've just had a, a, a good run of psychologists. Um, that's just changed just recently since uh, um, changing my psychiatrist, basically. Mm. Um, as in my psychiatrist I've just moved to is now... Uh, more actively involved in in, ther- in the therapy side of it uh, and hence why I'm just starting a, um, uh, a course of EMDR with this current psychiatrist. Can you tell so, us a little bit more
0: about that, that for people who don't know what EMDR is?
1: Um, well I'm new to it so I'm only okay. just learning it myself but it's uh, eye movement desensitisation response therapy so it, it's a case of um, uh, basically uh, they will talk about past traumas uh, at the same time as um, engaging your mind and trying to uh, process the memories and get the memories to get filed away properly because the, the memories that you have your traumas and you have haven't been filed away properly and that's why they, they remain as traumas
0: yeah I've heard that really so, I like that sort of analogy because I saw a great slide a while ago I think we actually shared it on some of the Code 9 social media platforms that that PTSD is like a brain that's full of open computer files and we haven't shut yes. any of them down.
1: Yeah, that's that's basically how he explained it to me. He said that we're, we're just going to uh, try and get these, these files that are still open and through some active mind um, engagement by moving your fingers around and your eyes following the finger movement, we're going to try and um, think about the traumas and give you a chance to reprocess them and file them away again.
0: Oh, well... Maybe once you've finished it, we can come back and have another potty in season two and, and, and find yeah. out what you thought about it all. But um, yeah. the other one that I've got circled here is noise. And you were saying that for you, that's a bit of a trigger for you, like being out, you can't go to the footy, you can't, you know, being, even just crossing the road with the cars going past. And I'm wondering, uh, for maybe for our listeners who aren't, aren't familiar or haven't experienced this, when did that start to be problematic for you, was it something that came on quite quickly as a symptom post-trauma, or was that a more of a cumulative thing that came on over years?
1: Uh, it came on. Uh, so I, I had one bad job back in the in the early two thousands, which was a, a really nasty job with a, a non-vehicle accident with a child, um, and there was other children there, and they were screaming and wailing, and. Um, uh, that symptom, That so whenever I hear children screaming, wailing, playing, happy screaming, so when c- kids are running around in a, a playground and they're, they're happily screaming and wailing and chasing each other, my brain processes that as that children are in pain, children right. are screaming in pain or in shock and, and horror. So whenever I hear a child happily scream, I, I'm instantly transported back to that, that day again. Mm. Um, that progressively... Uh, increased over the years um uh, so i'm highly noise um responsive and um i did a lot of years in in highway patrol as well and um revving cars and car accidents and and that kind of noise is is a major trigger for me as well um Mm -hmm. I suppressed all that over the years. That's what you do when you don't really realise anything's wrong with you But you, or you know something's not quite right but you don't realise it's PTSD. You just suppress it and it comes out as, as anger instead of anxiety. Uh, and it wasn't until I started getting treatment that um, these symptoms were actually able to sort of come out and be given a name and identified. Uh, to me it was just anger, all the time anger. Um, and I wouldn't realise that I'd hear a car bag up its tyres or I'd hear kids happily playing and, and then all of a sudden I'd be in this red-hot rage. I didn't know that that was what was making me angry all the time. And now that I can sort of identify it, I can go, okay, there's a kid's playground. I'll cross the road so I don't hear the hear the kids come up at all. Um, I'm at a busy intersection. I'll press the lights on the traffic lights and I'll take 10 paces back so I don't need to stand right next to the edge of the road. So the traffic noise doesn't affect me as much. Mm. Now I've learned that, but prior to it, I was, I would just turn into a rage for me.
0: Yeah. So you mentioned that that was like one of the particular crappy jobs that you went to, but one of the other significant ones for you that you've spoken about quite broadly in the media as well. And we've you know spoken about this prior to coming into today's podcast. So just so for, for the listeners, I'm not blindsiding Rob here. Um, I know the Black Saturday bushfires were a turning point for you, not only in your career, but ultimately in your life. Um, so if we go back to the fires, you were teamed up with an MFB officer and given a list of 30 names, which basically then, if, correct me if I'm wrong, you were you had to go and essentially GPS the body or the bodies and boundary up those houses to essentially help the disaster victim guys that were going to come in after you. Um, that's right. So that's sort of, you know, what you were doing and... You're certainly not alone. I've heard so many stories of people, particularly even from volunteers from the CFA, who were sent in to do things in terms of body management, remains, retrieval, that they just weren't trained for or prepared for. It wasn't part of their normal day-to-day job. But you've previously said it wasn't actually so much the bodies. It wasn't the side of the bodies so much that stayed with you, but it was the stories behind them, like when you would learn more about these deceased individuals. Why was it the stories that were so hard for you to move
1: past? Yeah, it, it wasn't the bodies at all. The uh, the bodies, as every emergency service's first responder knows, is you can, to a point, you can depersonalise it. It's just um, a crime scene. It's just a job, that, that kind of thing. And as long as you process it right, that's all that remains. Um, I engaged the help of the local CFA captain because we, everything was so... Devastatingly uh, destroyed, that we couldn't we couldn't find a street, we couldn't find a house, we couldn't find the places we were looking for, because it was just a, a war zone. Um, so we engaged with the help of the local CFA captain, and uh, so I'd say to him, "I'm trying to find the next name on the list. You know, Joe Blogs," and he'd go, oh, "Joe Blogs, okay. Joe Blogs is a, you know, the the ruck rover for the local football club, and um, as we're driving or walking to Joe Bloggs's house, he'd sort of tell me that, oh, my kids you know, grew up with Joe Bloggs and went to school with Joe Bloggs, and Joe Bloggs is a lovely bloke and does this and does that in the community and all that. And then I'd go in amongst the rubble and try and find Joe Bloggs's mm. body and would either would find it or wouldn't find it, GPS it or not. And then uh, I'd come out and he'd be standing there with sort of a, a expectant eyes or a hopeful face saying yes or no, and I'd either shake my head or sort of say, you oh, know, sorry, mate, and he'd be like, okay, who's next on all this? And he, I'd say, you yeah, know, Jane blogs. And he'd be like, oh, she's the president of a local CWA. And then I'd get the whole story, backstory of, of that individual. And um, so it uh, it wasn't the bodies. It was just the personalisation of the grief that um, that uh, this poor bloke was
0: was going through. Yeah. Oh. Do you need to take a break?
1: And, um, Do you need to take a break? No, mate? You're right. No, that's okay. fine. Yeah. And um, so it was a personalisation of the grief that this poor bloke was going through, and um, that has been a, uh, a part of my PTSD right through my career. Has been. It's actually not the uh, the gruesome scenes as such for me. It's been the. Um, it's, it's been uh, like in a, a serious injury collision where um, there's blood and guts and, and things like that. Um, it's not been the the, the horrible carnage as mm. such. It's been the people screaming and the people in pain. It's, and, it's, and it's affected
0: me. It's so interesting you say that, Rob, because our, our um, inaugural ambassador for the Code 9 Foundation, Jill Hicks, and some of you might have heard Jill talk previously, and Jill is certainly going to be an upcoming guest on our conversations with the Code 9 Foundation podcast series, and Jill was, or not was, is an Australian um, survivor of the London 2005 uh, bombings on the underground uh, system in London, and um, I am incredibly fortunate to call Jill one of my deepest and, and dearest friends, and we've had so many conversations, some of them over too many gin and tonics about you know, what was it about the bomb itself and being in that carriage and uh, what does she remember and what's actually triggered the PTSD for her. And similar to your story, in that, as you're saying, some of this takes quite a while to come out, Jill says her PTSD probably really didn't uh, manifest for probably about seven years after the attacks and she said maybe for her it was because she was so focused on, her physical recovery to start off with Jill, unfortunately lost both of her legs below the knee, horrific injuries. Um, so she was so focused on that physical aspect of survival, which she still deals with every day, like the ongoing trauma and suffering that she, she experiences with, you know, the nerve endings and, you know, we have very funny black humor that we use on the deep dark days where I can just tell she needs a bit of a release and, um, because you know, m- most recently she's been just bleeding out of her stumps for no reason, so I've taken to calling her Jesus with the stigmata, you know, <laughs> just a spontaneous bleeding. And sometimes you just need to have that inappropriate kind of language that you can use that just lightens it just a little bit. But when she reflects, she said, similar to you, it wasn't she, she has some memories of the carnage around her. There were certainly a few people still alive while she was willing herself to still live now this is a miraculous human being people who Mm -hmm. actually just managed to pull off this was something that uh, you guys might be more familiar with this rob being in emergency services but she said the bomb blast actually had blown all of their clothes off so most of them were actually the survivors were pretty nude down there in the train and she said but she did still have a remnant of a scarf that she had on and she did manage to have the you know clarity of mind in the middle of all of that to to try to raise her legs, which she knew were horrifically injured. She raised them and tourniqued themselves and then hung on for about an hour while the emergency services, you know, got down into where she she actually was. But it's not so much that, it's not so much the voices or what she saw or what she, she chooses to remember, but as you said, it was as the time passed and she got to know the family members of the people who died and it was their stories... Yeah, and she said it was getting to know who died and then she almost took on this sense of survivor guilt and feeling like she had to live for the rest of them for all of these people because she learned who they were and what their stories were and what they were doing within the community and she kind of took that on and she's like well I survived and they didn't so I now need to achieve everything that they would have achieved in a way which you know yeah. has been difficult for us, so I totally hear what you're saying in terms of that personalisation aspect is really, really difficult.
1: Yes,
0: so, very much so going back, obviously, massively traumatic event i mean most of australia who experienced it was traumatized in some way but you're as you said in the middle of what looked like a war zone entire streets and houses are just obliterated and i've had cfa friends say the same thing they're looking for a house and it's like how can you see it where there's no roads and and no letter boxes and you know you're sifting through dust trying to figure out whether it was the remains of their lounge room or whether it's actually a person like it was just horrific but after that you didn't get any counselling straight away? Is that correct?
1: Yeah, there was there was no counselling offered. It. it was just back to work and and away you go. It was uh, not offered, not thought about, and uh, um, yeah, that's just the way it was at the time. Unfortunately.
0: So you were struggling, but you've you said previously, and we've chatted about this, that you you were struggling, but you probably weren't really cognisant of it at the time. You weren't really aware of how badly you were struggling at the time.
1: Yeah, I didn't really know that I had that I wasn't well I just knew something wasn't right and to be honest it's the old thing about um, before you know that you've got PTSD just make sure you're not surrounded by arseholes um, I, I was probably more along the lines of thinking I'm probably just surrounded by assholes. I'm angry all the time because there's people all around me that are assholes, and in reality I was angry all the time because the way I deal with anxiety is either flee or anger and for me it comes out as anger so here I am thinking everyone around me is a, is is an ass. In reality it's me my anxiety was building up and building up and I wasn't dealing with that increased amount of anxiety in my PTSD and I was just taking it out in anger and I was getting worse and worse in, in anger in, in uh, at work and in my personal life. And
0: so once, so um, once you started I mean, realizing that yeah you, you started noticing it within yourself what held you back from telling people that you weren't feeling quite right?
1: Um, probably just the stigma. I, I was just sort of thinking if I could just get through this week, if I could just get through this week and I can just get through this month, then I should be right. If I can just get through this next big project, if I can just get through this next bit until I can get through to my leave, then I'll be right and I'll have another week or two off and then I'll be okay. i can have a break. If it was the old, if I can just get through this, I'll be right. If I can just make it to my next leave – I'll have a break and I'll be right. So, um, you know, I'll be right. I'll look after it myself. I don't need help.
0: We often do that to ourselves, don't we? We sort of keep making deals with ourselves almost. It's like I'll just get to this point and then I'll do X or I'll just get to this point and I'll feel better. And I've been doing that to myself lately, even just with my diet. I'm going to get to that point and then I'll start eating healthy. <laughs> and then once that happens and then I'll get back into a really good routine. But I think, yeah, we make these deals with ourselves almost to sort of keep ourselves going. But at some, yes, point, you did, so. at some point you did finally say, okay, no, though, um, you know, I need to get some help. What motivated yeah. that and sort of how far down the track was that from the, the bushfires?
1: Uh, So this was in 2013, so quite a few years afterwards. And um, my anger was at a stage where uh, it was coming out at home. I was a nightmare to live with. My kids would uh, run to the door to greet me, which anyone would think was a lovely thing to do. But In reality, what they were doing is they were coming to the door to meet me and see what mood I was in. And if I was in a bad mood, they'd scamper and and hide. If I was in a good mood, they'd say, you know, Dad, and and, um, and... with me, basically.
0: Mm. And did you recognise that at the time?
1: No, I had no idea. I was totally ignorant to all this. This is what my wife told me later. Mm. Um, uh, and uh, basically my wife um, was in all sorts of preparation to, to leave me and she gave me the final ultimatum of, of get help or get out. So um, eventually in a, in a moment of clarity I, I rang our welfare branch and said, Hey, all right, I need help, and uh, that's pretty much the way I said it. And um, by the time I finished the sentence, I was um, in tears and the conversation went for an hour. Mm. And um, so I'd gone from, yeah, I suppose I need help to, oh, oh my God, I'm actually not well. Um, and they referred me to our uh, EAP, and then I started in the uh, in the counselling process.
0: Was that in some ways easier or harder to have that conversation with a stranger than it was to sort of admit it to your family and yourself that things weren't right
1: oh easier with a stranger yeah. definitely. yeah very much so. no judgment
0: yeah so that, that's like like some four years after the fires you've been you've been dealing with this as you said for a whole host of reasons the stigma and the deals that we make with ourselves and hoping that we're going to get better you didn't actively ask for help for a while, but I'm wondering if at any point during that time did your employer actually actively reach into you and say, "Listen mate, we know you've been at a really really shitty event. Are you okay?"
1: No, not the slightest.
0: Mm. And see that's one no. of my biggest pet peeves and look, I think we are slowly moving in the right direction and we're definitely getting more yeah. proactive around mental health and well-being than reactive, but I'm sure that certainly didn't help at the time either.
1: Yeah. And Mm -hmm. just on this point, um, I reckon you could have seen, and I've seen this in other police officers and I'm sure across all the emergency services, I reckon if you were, you could have seen in me the change in my attitude, and I've seen this in many, many other other officers, that they slowly become more jaded, they slowly become more angry, they slowly become more bitter at management and... Um, you watch it and you, and, you, and you just think, what's wrong with him? He's um, just it's just more, more pissed off at the system, more angry at the system. Uh, and everything becomes, uh, you know, the old TJF expression, couldn't be bothered, angry at everything, angry at everybody on the road, angry at every crook. And you, you see the change and the, 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 um, the loss of innocence, basically. Mm. Um, now, yeah. in hindsight... What that may be with some people is, is the increase in anxiety and the increase in, in, or in the um, poor mental health in some people. Because for me, what happened is I've gone from being a healthy, fit, mentally healthy person out doing the job and loving it to a very negative, very angry, very jaded person um, at work every day. And if you actually were able to take a step back and, and, and look at me, um, wouldn't have been, hard to, wouldn't have been hard to track. Um, in hindsight, we've you know you can't put a, an old head on young shoulders, but I can now look back and see this amongst other workmates of mine over the years. Um, it it would have been good if I'd been able to sit there and say, "Dude, are you uh, how are you travelling? How are you tracking now? You know, just just have a quiet word to one of my mates and sort of just see how they how they're going."
0: So you've mentioned uh, that, you know, it got to a point in your family life and with your marriage where your wife basically gave you that ultimatum, so she had obviously seen the changes in you. Had any of your mates or your work colleagues or had anyone else said to you, well, you know, uh, yeah, are you travelling okay? Is, 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 is there something no. I can do? And do you no. think that was mainly no. more that they, not, not a lack of recognition, but just a, a more a reflection of this, they didn't know how to have that conversation?
1: Yeah, um, whether they don't, they don't recognise it um, or um, they don't know how to have a conversation, um, it's just the way we are. It's just the way we were at the time. With lack of lack of education around the subject, I think. Um, but uh, no, my wife knew. Yeah, she absolutely knew. Yeah. But um, but as I say, if you want to know if someone's mentally well or not, ask their partner.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, you're living with them day today, so they're going to see all those tiny little signs and, and things that we other people might not catch on for a while. Um, So, look, for anyone who knows you well, knows that these days you're a bit of a package deal. And I have to say that I certainly think your new partner certainly steals the show here, but you have an incredible assistance dog, a beautiful Labrador called Jimmy. So within all of this, so it was four years after the event that you rang Welfare and said, you know what, listen, I'm not okay. I, I think I need some help here. At what point in the process between then and now, so that was 2013, where... 2020 now when did you start thinking oh an assistance dog might really help and when did Jimmy ultimately come into the picture for you
1: so I was madly once I was diagnosed I was madly looking for anything to do to fix me I'm like right I've got PTSD so I must get it fixed yeah you know, that, that that was my attitude so I was madly googling basically I saw that the Americans were were large into service dogs into assistance dogs so that led me to searching Australia for um, for what uh, who had assistance dogs, and that led me onto Assistance Dogs Australia. Um, so I made contact with them and um, went through the application process, and went onto the waiting list um, in 2014, and I got paired up with Jimmy in 2015. And basically, I was after anything that I could do to try and lessen the impact of PTSD on me, and and allow me to get some life back. Um, and basically I just try and keep my job. So um, I got paired up with Jimmy in, in 2015.
0: And how has he changed your life?
1: He saved my life. So yeah. he saved my life in quite a few ways. Um, the, the biggest and, and, and broadest way is there was the stage where I was sitting on the side of a hill, uh, being out um, shooting and hunting. And I'd, I'd found a quite a remote spot, and uh, I just thought, you know what, if I top myself here, I, um, they won't find me for a long time. And that's, that's probably, I don't know if you hear Jimmy yawning in the background. <laughs> um, it's, um, if I top myself here, they, they won't find me for a long time, and that's a good thing, and that will make the pain go away because I just want the pain to go away. And uh, I put the rifle in my mouth. I was sitting down on the side of the hill and put the rifle in my mouth and um, Jimmy's trained to pick up on my distress signals on my distress signs and he had no idea obviously that I was about to shoot myself but he he knew that I was in a great amount of distress so he immediately um, nuzzled up under my arms through my knees and up and under my arms and started licking my face and um, madly licking my face and uh, that was enough for me to to take the rifle barrel out of my mouth and and go, you know what, I I don't want to do this I don't want to die today and, um, yeah, so uh, that changed the outcome that day. So he saved my life in a lot of ways, but he's actually physically saved my life on on, uh, on one particular occasion. So, um, yeah, I'm pretty attached to him.
0: Well, I'm struggling to put um, words together now because I've got tears streaming down my face. But um, you've previously said that uh, it ain't weak to speak, and I think that's such an important message and it's obviously even today; it's still so important for us to keep getting that message out there. How's Jimmy helped in having that conversation with people?
1: So I I had uh, Jimmy come with me to work um, in 2015. Jimmy, I, I was uh, in involved in instructing in tasers as they rolled out across Victoria. So I'd run a taser instructors course in different locations around the state. And um, Jimmy would come and he'd uh, sit in the corner with his head on um, Cuffed Man on a, on a taser dummy and just sleep in the corner. And um, I'd start the class by saying, you know, I'm soaking my back so I've been diagnosed with PTSD and uh, massive depressive disorder and um, chronic anxiety and a few other things. Um, this is Jimmy, he looks after me. He's trying to pick up on my distress signs. Mostly he'll just sleep and fart in the corner and um, you'd need not, you need not worry about him um, <laughs> Typical the Timbical course. Typical fella. Yeah, you need need to worry about him for the day. And um, I'd do the course and uh, I'd also run a a two-hour information session for General Duties Police. Every single session that I ran, every part of the state that I ran it, I would have a, a police officer stay back at the end of the course to ask me questions supposedly about Jimmy. But within two questions about Jimmy, they would sit there and say to me, mate, I'm not travelling well. How how did you get help? Who did you get help from? How how do you have PTSD? You know, you still in the job. How can I get diagnosed? How can I get treatment and remain in the job? Basically, open up to me about their mental health mm-hmm. um, because Jimmy started the conversation. So I it got to the stage where I'd run this two hour session for the general duties police and. Um, you'd see one person hanging around at the end of the class and I'd just wait for them to come up because hey, I know what this is about. This, this, here's someone struggling with their mental health and they're going to roll out the same two questions about a dog before they get tears in their eyes mm-hmm. and, they, and they talk to me about their mental health. One, two, three, bang, here they come, there it is. You just, you just provided a, an excuse for somebody to, um, to come up and, and start opening up and talking about their mental health and they basically saw it as you're in the job and you've got PTSD yet you're still working how do I get help? How do I do this? How do I how do I retain my job as well?
0: But did you find that being able to have those conversations and being able to instigate those conversations was good for your mental health?
1: Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah it's. Um, I mean, we we join emergency services to help people, so um, that's why I'm involved in the Code Nine Foundation just to to help people mm. because I'm no longer in the emergency services. So um, it's it's very fulfilling to be able to. Um, to to be able to reach
0: out and help people and one final question on jimmy because i mean we could do an entire podcast just on jimmy he's just a bit too cute um but how does he feel about the new addition to the family with those gorgeous goats that you've got (laughs) at home now yeah
1: that's jimmy um
0: (laughs) that was him saying he does he does not not too sure about the goats he he still likes being the center of attention
1: well, yeah. So I took him in with the goats the other day because uh, so I've got many, two miniature goats and um, they're only uh, they're only about thirteen weeks old. And um, I took Jimmy in to get to know him the other day, and one of them sort of reared up and headbutted him. <laughs> so he's um, <laughs> they're, they're still uh, they're still getting used to Jimmy. Getting, they're there's getting a,
0: used to each other.
1: Yeah, there's still a bit of a standoff there at this stage.
0: Like any new siblings yeah exactly <laughs> look Rob we're getting towards the end of our podcast I mean we've probably gone even a little bit over to what I would usually do but ugh, gosh I could talk to you for, forever I say that to most of our guests but it really is true um, but I do have one um, final question for you in terms of uh, well-being and that's that we we did a recent podcast episode with outgoing Chief Commissioner of Victoria Police Graham Ashton and he was brilliant and was so honest and, and um, engaging and spoke about you know what he would have liked to have done a bit differently, and where he hopes Victoria Police go in the future in terms of well-being. And he talked about his hope that the police force really look at start implementing what he said compulsory or mandatory six monthly well-being check-ins. And I'm I'm wondering um, what your thoughts are about that. Whether we need that um, you know mandatory check-in when people are feeling almost well um, instead of waiting until people are in crisis.
1: Yeah, look, I'm actually uh, an advocate for that. I, uh, I did a deployment to the Solomon Islands for uh, 18 months, two years with the um, International Deployment Group. And we, um, we used to have mandatory um, uh, mental health checks uh, before you could return to mission or leave, leave them each mission. Um, now, mine was done with a cigarette um, uh, out the back over a chat with the um, captain psychologist. He used to be a smoker as well. They were just an informal chat. Um but they were a good thing. they uh, if they provide you with a chance to to have a chat and just provide that, that opportunity to have somebody read you, basically, um, give you some numbers, um, quietly open up without being judged, that's not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's it, it's very hard to reach out. It's, we need our people to to reach in because mm. when you're not well, you don't reach out. You mm. really don't reach out. Um, we really do need people to to reach in and say, you know what, I don't think you're, you're travelling real well at the moment. I'd like you to, I'd like you to do this. I'd like you to call here. I'd like you to make an appointment here or, or thereabouts. So you get somebody in a private setting away and provide them with some resources. You never know what what might come out of it. If it only helps two, three, four, five people a year, then that's. Um, then that's a good thing with the suicide rate that we have, um, with the mental illness rate that we have, I think it's a a good thing. And for those that are travelling well, then, well, it's a couple of hours without paperwork. Any break from paperwork is not a bad thing at all. (laughs)
0: Listen, any final words of wisdom from you, someone who is, as I said, so highly respected um, in this space, particularly within the Code 9 family? Particularly I'm thinking here for any of our listeners who might be struggling a bit at the moment and they listen to you and they think, you know, you seem to have got it together, you've figured things out a bit. But as we mentioned at the start, you certainly do still have your bad days and it has been a long journey for you to get to this point where you are in a pretty good place with your mental health and wellbeing and you've got your self-care practices pretty much locked in now. If you could just offer any kind of words of wisdom to anyone who's struggling at the moment who might be listening, what would it be?
1: Um. PTSD is easier to manage once you accept that you have it. If you stop fighting that you have it and just accept it and live with it, it's, it's a lot easier. If you can modify your daily practices to accept that you have it. It's a lot easier. Um, I used to fight that I had PTSD. I wouldn't change my daily routine, and therefore I would break down every day. Once I accepted it, modified my daily routine slightly because of it, it became a hell of a lot easier. And in line with what Greg Dean was saying in his podcast, we need our, across all three services in Esther. we need our intermediate managers to reach in and know their people and reach in and really look after their people and, and offer, be on the front foot and offer mental health services or, a, or a, um, a willing ear because it's really hard to reach out sometimes.
0: Yeah, such important advice. Listen, Rob, I've been recording podcasts for the past couple of years, You know, most recently now for the Code 9 Foundation, but usually for my students in, in postgraduate disaster and emergency response, and there's only ever been two times that I've been moved to tears in the middle of recording. Um, one was with my lifelong um, professional mentor, Professor Frederick Skip Burkle, and if anyone wants to look up, you know, an inspiring person in terms of... Your mental health and disaster response, Skip Burkle, is just ridiculously cool. Um, and one of the podcasts was Skip talking about his experiences as a very young man being deployed to Vietnam and that was his exp- his first experience with um, conflict and since then he was being sent to pretty much every major conflict and disaster that's ever occurred around the world. But he moved me to tears and, and you certainly did today as well. And I just, I'm just saying that, not to make you feel guilty, you bugger, but... Um, <laughs> to just really highlight the importance of sharing stories and being honest and because we never know who needs to hear those words on that given day. So thank you for sharing your time today. I know that it can be hard to talk about some of the stuff that we talk about in these kinds of podcasts, but I think it's so important to share those stories because that's such an important part of breaking down the stigma and normalising the conversations and taking away the taboo to have big tough guys like you because I think the first time I came across your photo in Code 9 it was a photo of you I think in the pool and you had this massive beard and a hat on and maybe a beer and I'm like he looks like a tough guy like I need to get him on side (laughs) if I'm ever going to be welcomed into Code 9 but um, when you take away the big hairy beard and the hat and the beer and everything you are a top bloke and You have just done so much uh, to move us forward in the right direction in terms of normalising the conversations around mental health. So I thank you sincerely for everything that you do.
1: Thank you, Erin. Please go and give those goats and Jimmy a big hug. Cheers, I will.